Hello. Yeah, that's Molly Klein, and this is John Stepling. Um, this is Aesthetic Resistance, and this is podcast number four, the second um, between myself and Molly. And so let's just um, jump into this, as you let's put it. Let's jump time. into this. So I was thinking, okay, so one thing, because we were talking just now that maybe we'll talk about the phenomenology of money and continue with the mediology and screen damage, but just in what what's happening now, you know, because I was on Twitter this morning, you know, and of course the paid trolls are out um, to leap on you about coronavirus, you know, and then they have all these little, everything is set up in these little advertising like stories that are, are very, very narrow, right? So yeah, they're really yeah. storytelling. Glenn Greenwald disavowed his entire career and saying, well, I used to be a civil libertarian, but now this stupidity, it's hard for me to, to hold on to it. And then he, he shows, he, he, um, he linked to a video of a young woman, um, you know, just sort of a healthy California looking woman or Midwest, you know, kind of corn fed blonde American girl saying, well, you know, I do have immune issues, but I take a lot of supplements and I take a lot of vitamins and I boost my immune system and I'm not that worried. So this, this woman now is the soccer mom or whatever, the, the, the hate figure who has made him disavow a, a civil libertarianism that he famously was able to sustain while defending Weave, the Nazi who was calling for the gassing of um, the disabled. Like, yeah, so th I, this woman is the intolerable woman that he has to protect the Nazis from that she's right. not that worried and she take she stays healthy and boosts her immune system. Well, I wrote a thing on Facebook the other day, yesterday, yeah. perhaps, and and saying, asking about, you know, uh, uh, the statistics from Italy and and the flu statistics and Perhaps Italy was counting, you know, because they've been hit very hard with seasonal flu the last few years. And yeah. Said, so how many flu cases does Italy have this year? I'm just curious, you know, because yeah. suddenly they're not counting the flu anymore. They're only counting, and the symptoms are identical. And um, somebody wrote me and said, I think you're irresponsible and I'm unfriending you. These people are trying to follow the rules set by experts. And I said, I didn't, I asked a question. I'm following the rules. I'm doing what I'm told. Yeah, I mean, and also I'm, it's, know, they know, is. they know, I mean, obviously the, uh, any virus that's out there is racing another virus to, or, uh, or cancer or whatever to kill like weak old people. Weak old people have a lot of things that well, threaten um, them with death. And one of the things is going to get them first. So, you know, um, it's, it's it's this is like yeah you're not allowed to do actually any kind of real rational or scientific thought you only have these stories like that this you know and it, it was interesting and i'm going to digress a little because i had prepared this little phenomenology discussion for another podcast that didn't come off and i just wanted to say like one of the things that you know like if we get to the very ground level like how does this take apart reason one of the things is like we know the special thing about visuality visuality is makes you narrow-minded because you literally only can look in one direction right you can hear all around you so you're situated as you are your your hearing is perceiving yourself surrounded by the world as you actually are but your visuality 
is only in one direction in front of you, but you can turn your head, right? And when you look at the real world, it, you, it's implied that you're surrounded. You know you only see the bookcase in front of you that I'm looking at now, but I know there's a wall behind me. I feel it. I feel my back against something, but I also know that in this world that I'm seeing now, it's all surrounding me. But when you look at a screen, there's nothing implied behind you. Anything, right. everything is just in front of you. So already your something is being taken apart in terms of your existence in the world because you're not immersed in that world. Well, let me or, just interject yeah. for one second because it's very funny. I was reading yeah. this morning an old blog post of mine and that was McLuhan in a way because he talked about acoustic space. You know, right. it no, exactly. no margin, and, and it, it is, you know, very different than... The right, and when he talks about the hot and cold media, that that's the difference, right? Yeah. That's one of the yeah. differences and all his, right, but acoustic space, right? And it's, and then they made his, one of his, um, his acolytes, uh, Ong, who wrote that good book about Ramus and the decay of the dialogue, but he, yeah, yeah. he made that a, a sort of bad, but you know, partially interesting argument about morality, uh, orality, and as it, and, you know, it was a sort of um, civilizationist argument, but it was, you know, that like Hitler and radio and why that was so powerful for people to hear Hitler's voice. Right. And that it's not so before television or whatever, but the, but the, it's taking apart, you know, when you look ahead in front of you and then the, the screen is, you can't even turn your head inside that thing. You just look at it. It's it's a it's a fixed view, right? And they right. it's controlling you. And so you actually nothing is implied behind you. When you're staring at a screen, you lose the sense of being immersed in any kind of space. And then that just it takes apart a rationality, it seems that that applies in a structural way in all kinds of things, like language. Like the kids now with the coronavirus, the virus is the evil, it's the villain. They only care about, they, you know, they just don't think the virus has a right to kill a single person. You know, that's the story. <laughs> so, that, so that it doesn't matter. They can do anything. They can kill people to stop the virus from killing. Well, let me say, let me say two things. Yeah. I told my wife the other day, yesterday, yeah. I said, you know, I'm going to stop arguing about coronavirus in public because somebody's going to get killed um, for, for being, in quotations, irresponsible. Oh, there, yeah. is, there is an absolute, it is, there is a, a, a latent violence that is surfacing um, because this is, this is the, the movie of the week that everybody's been waiting for. That's the first thing. The acoustic space point, though, is is interesting because um, Paul Ricoeur wrote a book on Freud. It's actually a very good book, whether one's a Freudian or not. And, and Ricoeur was talking about something that resembled acoustic space, but in the context of memory. And really what he was saying was that memory is a process of working through things. And it's difficult and it is not simply a, a, a one-dimensional narrative that goes from A to B to C. <clears throat> it is far more complicated than that. And that, that, you know, and the psychoanalysis was part of this working through the talking cure and so forth and so on. Um, and I think that the, what one takes away from that, what one can extrapolate from that, and Ricoeur kind of does this actually, is that 
that dreams and allegory and fable and symbolism are all connected intimately with this process of working through one's memory. And that's sort of how we construct ourselves in some sense. So if we're talking about the phenomenology of the screen, yeah, I have thought for a while that one of the problems with the screen um, is that, is that it, it removes that, that ability to, um, to backtrack and go forward and exist in this, in this, this allegorical or, or symbolic space that is, that is, a, that is a process. It is a yeah, and I was like one of the bad things about McLuhan, although right, he's partially like he calls it acoustic space. He decides that it's just a hearing when in fact our immersion in space is tactile, our skin feels, our sense of smell is really important. All it's everything working together. And the fact that you can turn around and move your head, your muscles and all this, you know, so they want to abstract the various sentences senses and, and really comprehend them as separate things and kind of again it's a technological determinism except we're the technology but the um but the the that that thing that you're talking about with recur i mean right i actually it's very interesting the but the uh Yes, exactly. Was that the it, truth? The truth book. It was called Truth and something. But I, I think this was from his book on Freud. I don't remember where I. I, I, I don't. I only read that Truth, not Truth and Method. That's got him. Truth and something. But, I actually um, have the quote here. Here yeah, is the quote. But it is real. Yeah. It says, "But what is it to remember? It is not just to recall certain isolated events." but to become capable of forming meaningful sequences and ordered connections. Yeah, and, and also, right, so that the fact that our memories are very imperfect and, anything, and everything is not, is part of our praxis of, right. uh, yeah, reproducing ourselves and the world and our relationships with the world. And yeah, the screens undo that, they undo it, the capacity is on the very basic level of now we don't even know that we're in space, you know, and the loss of self. I mean, you don't. Yeah, and, I think, and I this think is, that's literally true. I think. Yeah, the, I think and it's related to, to, yeah. to screens is a kind of loss of self. That's what it has resulted in. Yeah, in this really fundamental level where even the capacities then when you take them off the screen, you know, because what was the other thing? Oh, yeah, like we were talking about like, okay, so now we're talking in very general about propaganda and how everyone is, you know, and we can see that they've gotten really, really good at hurting people. And a lot of people just assume because they're used to individualistic psychologizing explanations for things. They think that they've made everyone the same, but that's not what's happened. It's that they've recognized that you can hurt people while, um, rec you know, realizing that they're all going to participate they're going to do what you want them to do but for all their different individual reasons right, like you don't right, have to right. micromanage each mind and somebody was talking about this about you know it's the transformation from the cybernetics thinking like we're going to build an artificial intelligence or we're going to turn people into these programmable machines to risk analysis and chaos theory that stuff that was developed with the massive computing power they don't have to design how each individual viewer views a television show. They have to make the television show appealing 
in a, such a flexible way that each person can modify it for themselves to suit right. themselves. Well, so, when, we talked, yeah. when we talked about television last time yeah. and, and film in this context, I was thinking really what it is when you, when you watch shows now, I think when the general public, your average viewer watches um, a, a television narrative, it's a, it's a process of like pattern recognition now. That's all it is. Yeah, um, but that goes to the recur, right? Like each yeah, person is taking that implant memory. It's not, it's a synthetic memory that they, you know, swallowed like a capsule into their mind, but then it's doing, they're doing that thing to it that he describes. Right, right. No, I think, I think that um, this is, this is why um, social media has is such a sort of insidious and, and nefarious um, phenomenon uh, because it all takes place on the screen and and there is there are these illusions of things being you know that you tailor it to your specific you know brand your taste your vision it's your page it's your thing and it's in truth not it's not that it's homogenized, but it's that it doesn't matter that it's not homogenized because right, because it's it's the, better. The it's, narrative, as it were, is is homogenized. You know, right? It's like the the discovery. I mean, they learned a lot about marketing because would okay, they were driven by the quest for products for shelf space. So you made five different flavors of your soda. You got five times the space on the shelf. And then that was good for the, that, you know, it was a little worry like, oh, if we sell five different kinds of Coke, you know, aren't people are go only going to want the classic Coke, but no, the five different kinds is, and you know, Malcolm Gladwell wrote a popular uh, article about this, about the spaghetti sauce, you know, in the New Yorker, like getting 20% of it right. And then drawing all kinds of idiotic conclusions. But the shelf space, you know, you realize you, you five different kinds of Coke, you five different amounts of the shelf. It doesn't hurt the brand, you know, that, that you, so you make things that are personalizable, you know, that everyone can say that's for me. And so, you know, and you see it, there used to be every, every blockbuster movie, you know, for kids or whatever was openly liberal, right? It was liberal, liberal, liberal. And now, and then they started to go to this stuff like um, the Dark Knight, right? Was a big mm -hmm. advance where you know fashion. Everybody could. It was for everyone. Every people could read a critique of capitalism. They could read fascism. They could read whatever they wanted, and in it because it was built that way. It was built to um, right. allow the reception to satisfy any. You know, it was built to say, "I'm for you." Right. Whoever you but are. That's, but that's perfect. Yeah. No, I mean, in a way, it is it is it is like paint by numbers that that um you know came out 50 years ago. The the feeling that um you were were the child was making this painting, but in fact, you know, he was just following a very strict set of options, almost no options, but you know. Um, right. And came, but it, and your, it's your, you see yourself and you can adjust it a little bit. Right. And you but can it's like with a villain, you know, people suddenly, you know, like a villain, it, of course, the, you make it a villain attractive. That's part of um, formula. But then all of a sudden allowing this to be like, okay, now your villain is your hero. Or, you know, allowing people to adjust their responses to what makes them more excited.
Right. Well, that that we should maybe jump into just as forever for how long I don't know, but because you and I had talked about reveals, the way narrative yeah. is constructed today, and this is relevant to to what we were just saying, I think. Um, that the 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 sense that that sort of narratives have this fungible quality now um, and it's a pattern recognition and this show that just concluded the Richard Price thing on HBO The Outsider um, Chris Rossi wrote me about it we were exchanging letters and he said the there was kind of three endings to it it felt like it was written by committee and then there would be dot 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 which it right. probably was um, but that that quality there was an ending for everybody in a sense yeah like love and, actually was like that like it was a it was a romance movie with a bunch of different couples but that yeah, so that it could deliver literally like six or eight of those grand kiss endings right, that, that right. were in the jane austen movies or the you know four weddings and a funeral it was those people but so they had that ending they literally it was 20 minutes of ending yeah, no, I remember that film because I actually yeah. knew the guy who made it and because it had a misplaced comma in the title. I always, I always, oh, right. <laughs> it's terrible. But, but anyway, um, yeah, I, I, I think that, that um, you know, it's hard to sit here and, and talk about yeah. these things without, you know, I'm in Norway without touching on the coronavirus. I mean, I'm in yeah. Norway that has shut down. I mean, it is, it is just everything's closed. Um, schools are closed and public buildings are closed. There's right. very limited opening times for groceries and whatever. Streets are empty. And I went shopping this morning and people give you a wide berth. You know, they, they walk yeah. in circles around you very widely. And I'm thinking this is such madness. And yeah. what's frightening. I mean, the, the virus is real. I mean, this is, people don't want to get it. They were, I mean, the, but it's like uh, they're focused on that while this enormously catastrophic assault on the whole population is happening by the governments. Yeah, I just, I just, I think, and you, you know, yeah, it's real and so is seasonal flu and so- Yeah, I mean, it's probably worse than, I mean, people are gonna die. They're gonna use it to kill people. But the thing is, they're not taking any measures to, these measures are gonna make it worse. Well, what's I gonna, mean, yeah, the immune system, the whole immune system of the entire working class is being is under massive attack by yeah. the by poverty, by the by terror, by staying at all. All this stuff is just it's an enormous plunder. They just took another two trillion dollars. Right. And handed it to the ruling class to take out of the stock market, to flow through the stock market, to take out, to plunge <laughs> the to plunge the pensions, everybody's seeing their pension, but also they're throwing people out of work. That's the worst thing you can do for people's immune. I mean, the, the virus is gonna spread, it's gonna kill some people. It's, you, there's no stopping the spread. And then, and then, but, oh, right. So this was the point of my saying the story about the screens. It's like people need a story, like they tell a stupid story, like that it's being spread in a pub. It's like, no, it's the fucking global supply chains. It's Amazon. That's why something like this can spread, like really <laughs> spread. It's not that it's a little cold going around in your neighborhood, in your pub with the people that you live with already. I mean, but they imagine this story of how it spreads and and like they're in a fable, like in a movie, they have no fucking idea what they're talking about. But then meanwhile, 
all this is happening in a context where there is a massive assault. I mean, they're impoverishing people. They're going to indenture people in this country. It's going to, they're, they're, there's people don't have, they're putting people out of work. They're stealing the money and they've just deflated the wages with a massive transfer into assets. They've, they've inflated the assets in a way that just massively multiplies, uh, you know, reduces the uh, wage values. And, and this is a massive thing and people are so enumerate, they can't figure out the scale of it, you know, in comparison to the virus. Right. Well, and the thing that the other thing that's going to happen, and you can see it happening already, is that uh, people are manufacturing, again, a personalized, like moral response or something. Yeah. People are like choosing what is the, the version, the narrative version of a of a response that, you know, which character do I want to be in this morality play? And, and it, because I've seen this like breathtaking um, uh, uh, hypocrisy in people yeah. um, and scolding other people for questioning it. And, and, and the inanity where they them. say, and, we're going to, we need to practice, we need to practice uh, social distancing which means avoiding crowded bars and it's like no social distancing means that there aren't crowded bars you fucking moron and it, but it's like no that i'm the only human being it doesn't become a virus threat until i walk into that room so the crowded bar is still there in the social distancing fantasy like what my head explodes you know it's like the way they it's, it's like, you know, it's, it's really, you know, like um, fashionable hipsters used to say that, like, nobody goes to that place anymore because it's too crowded. Right. You know, meaning that nobody who's anybody. And it's the same statement, except yeah. in yeah. social distancing, um, this fantasy, right, of you're going to stop spreading the virus. And it's like, so are you saying you are the carrier? You are the sole carrier? So yeah, no, it's very peculiar. But but I, yeah, I mean it's strange. And and who was it? I mean Trudeau, I think, said you know I'm because my wife has I forget the details, but he said because my oh, wife yeah. had it, I'm going to self quarantine. And I thought right. that's a really strange term. And I've heard other people say I'm self isolating. Self isolating. I mean it's like a chastity pledge, you know. It's 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 these strange, absolutely empty declarations of of piety somehow. And because, and this is what reminds me hugely of um, the whole discourse around climate change, you know, the new green discourse that yeah. I spoke to Corey Morningstar today about it, in fact. And she said, yeah, the same cult-like um, uh, kind of reflexive responses seem to be in place. People are, you know, um, I, I, and whenever somebody says, you know, I care, I want to be responsible, I care about people, so I'm going to self-isolate, I'm going to, the, you can rest assured that, that they don't care about other people at all. You know, what they're saying is I care about myself and my image and yeah. how I present myself in um, this on a screen because that's how all the intercourse anyone's going to have anymore is on the screens. And, um, and this is being encouraged, these governments. I mean, it's crazy. It's crazy that, that you know. Uh, the paid trolls, yeah. The paid down. trolls are like all about pretending they have immunocompromised friends now. 
Right. They're like, you're going to kill my friend. And it's like, no, that your friend can't return the bottles for her medicine <laughs> today. That's going to kill her. That She's being evicted because of what you're doing, because you're not going to let her sleep on your sofa because you're self-isolated when right. she's evicted. But they have a friend. They have an, a friend with MS who is like a, an imaginary friend who has no financial troubles, mysteriously. Well, um, and you're going to kill her by letting your friend with MS sleep in your on your sofa or or return the bottles for the deposit. well a homeless guy I got a letter tommy jed actually who i uh, guess on facebook posted yeah. a letter from from a homeless guy who said what's going to be really hard is there's no free soup kitchens now um and panhandling and, panhandling yeah, is going to fall off the table all of these things you said for homeless now this is a nightmare it's not the virus it's the the state response that is going to kill us now it's going to kill people, and then, but they're, but the friend, the 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 paid trolls have a friend with MS who doesn't, who's not homeless. It, it's like not a typical person with MS in America, you know. It's all, it's this, it's a story, you know. It, it's just a story, and and then, but with no, everything is happening in no context. And I was thinking about, oh, I wanted to say, I wrote this down while you were talking about the reveals is that to not get off that the reveals are like the structure of everybody's thought. Like that's like hipsters talking reveals, you know, when they say, oh, you know, you would think if you did da da da, but turns out, you know how they right. do that formula all the time. Turns out this is bad for the New York City subway system or the reveals are all the clickbait is reveals where it says, you know, this woman <laughs> went to, um, went to her wedding at, with her dog. You, what happened will surprise you, right? Yeah, and that's yeah. the click. That's so it's like thing. all these things are structured that reveal this people watching the screen. So now their world is not a developing historical world. It's a predestined um, solid state mystery box. And their only relationship to it is to open the little window and see what's in there already. Right. You know, they're not, there's no interaction. There's only like the world is in this box. And yeah. um, if you put a coin in, you'll be able to see what's already in there. <laughs> right? Yeah, it's like the Duchamp <laughs> mystery box, didn't he have? Yeah, <laughs> but it isn't it a little bit? It is. Well, I'm, I'm that, that the clickbait <laughs> model, the way people talk, that is a lot of how um, scripts are written in Hollywood. You know, there yeah. is. The, the second act turnaround or the reveal, all these terms they use to describe these kind of um, um, drop from the sky reveals. The, the lead character tears off his fake mustache and beard in the third act right. and turns out to be a woman. And, right. you know, and everyone goes, wow, isn't what a surprise. And then a little later you think, but that's impossible because in act one, this and this and this happened. Nobody cares right. about that. The but it's interesting. The surprises are all put in the prehistory. Like everything is baked in. Nothing right. happens in the future. There's no future. The future has been locked off and all it is is revealing the past. Mm, Just we think we're looking forward, but we're actually, well, as they point out, when you, you're, we're actually looking always at the past, right? The, the, what the future is actually behind us, what we don't see. But now, but um, the, um, the 
people are imagined anthropologically, like upside, we're disoriented in that way, thinking that we look into the future on a screen that is actually showing us the past, the dead, you know, dead things, things that already happened. And that's really true in that these things were already filmed. And then the stories are now saying that, you know, we're trapped in this, it's a, it's a Calvinist kind of um, nightmare. Yeah, yeah, well, but it is. I mean, I think that, that, that um, to kind of go back mm -hmm. to, to where you started with, with screens and then the phenomenology of screens um, and acoustic space and all of that, uh, there is something uh, that has yet to be fully understood about mass viewing of screens that that so many people are watching the same few things um, on on screens at the same time often although not always and, right less and, now that was like peak television where you know a hundred million people were watching Rhoda's wedding right <laughs> you know and and so the the I don't know what the implications are fully, but that that you see with this virus how quickly, how easily, um, seamlessly governments issue these statements, you know, these incredible statements. School is shut down until further notice. Government buildings are shut down. You can't go to work. You can't do this. And people go, oh, right. Okay, well, it's for my own good. Okay, okay. Um, and yeah, because it's in the spectacle. It's true. They've shifted the rea The spectacle used to be like something that was inside their reality and influencing their reality. And now the spectacle is our, I mean, that is our, most yeah. people's lives are, are um, on the screen. Well, it most of their lives. Seamlessly, yeah. because I think their attention, it, it, yeah, that, those statements, whatever is happening, schools being shut down, um, is is translated into a screen phenomenon for them. You know, it's, it's put into their personalized screen brand reality. Yeah. And, and so it's just one component in these things, um, in this, you know, multi-tiered uh, narrative complex that is their identity on, on social media or on screens or something. And um, I, I'm just, it will be interesting to see as, because this is just the start of this and everything seems open-ended. They're saying, well, we don't know how long things are gonna be closed. At what point does the material hardship for people like, oh, I just noticed that, you know, I haven't been earning any money for, you know, three weeks. Uh, when does that start to 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 crack this, this strange, um, you know, this, this strange unreality that is attached to the screen. And just a sidebar on that, I, I mentioned something about, you know, why wasn't there emergency declared about like the million homeless, which is probably an accurate number in LA County. And somebody wrote me and said, well, no, but Governor, Governor Newsom is, is got a lot of hotels and I, you know, and buildings that he's converting and he's gonna put homeless people in there, but a lot of them don't wanna go. And I said, of course, most of them don't want to be put back in the system, you know, and I can't blame them. But number two, this is a this is like what a ten thousand maybe 
maybe he'll get that many people. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a bit on this on the screen though. In the spectacle, it's just as big because people are exactly. enumerate now because they have no exactly. because they've been taken apart their ability to really understand to estimate sizes of things. And, you know, some people still have that capacity visually, but they don't have it mathematically, abstractly at all. And, um, you know, it, it's, it's really, uh, it's, 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 it's mind, it's mind training. Like it's, it's, we are, the capacities are taken apart. Now I believe that people can get them back, but right now they don't have them. They literally don't have them. They don't yeah, have people, these capacities. And there is certainly, um, there is certainly a strange quality out there, and I and I think it's pretty prevalent when you watch American film, Hollywood film, and TV, which is that um, people are are now really uncomfortable with the idea of asking questions, and you see characters in films do not ask questions that are you know outside a very small parameter and now you know I've, i feel like i'm i'm generalizing here in this way and i probably should have some specific examples but but it is if you if you you know those of you listening to this if you pay attention and you watch any you know studio network dramatic series you will see um characters ask each other questions that they already know the answers to um, that are related to very narrow plot points for that character or their job. Cops will ask about clues and so forth. Lawyers will ask about guilt or innocence. But, but characters do not ask about things that are bigger than that. They do not ask questions about things that perhaps are unanswerable, but that the question has meaning anyway. That, that is just, I mean, there's a number of examples of this kind of shrunken universe that has taken over um, the way narrative works. And all you have to do is, is watch, um, you know, watch an Antonioni film or a Bertolucci film or watch one of the 1940s film noirs or- Right, you know, or all those Italian Cassidy. movies about the, from the Shasha novels, which are about mysteries that are mysteries that end mystery, you know, that stay mysterious, like you learn half of the gladio and then you, you can't ever get to the bottom. Yeah. And so it's, 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 yeah, it's just, it's like, um, it's the, the, the drop down menu. It's the, I mean, I have friends. Yeah, it is. It is. With teenage kids who say, when I ask my friends, what do you, my kids, you know, kids, Talking about New York City kids with um, all the access to every kind of creative thing that you still have in New York, although it's, it's narrowed. But they say, what do you want to do this weekend? And they say, what are my options? <laughs> what are the choices? They don't, yeah, but that's a they perfect don't, That's it. Perfect, they, they need the drop down menu to pick from. They really need it. And um, I mean, of course, this isn't, you know, and also, as I should say, like this is it's a class. It's the wired class. And it's much worse among the clerks, you know, of all the income levels than it is. I mean, like in my neighborhood, uh, which is mostly immigrants, none of this is going on. The, I went, Jake and I went to a restaurant last night. Uh, the family was sitting there all eating together. People were going in there. 
the, the grocery store is full of toilet paper and nobody's hysterical. There is no social distancing. You walk into the Indian grocery store down the block, there's no social distancing going on. None of that is happening. Nobody's paranoid. Um, of course, you know, the, um, it's going to hit them, you know, that economically it's a disaster, you know, it's going to yeah. be a catastrophe. But in terms of like the terror of, um, you know, just believing everything that's being streamed out of Twitter or social media and on the screen, like that people don't believe it. Um, but it, they have no, they can't, they're totally disempowered. I mean, because we are so atomized because there is this layer of the clerks between the ruling class and the population that, you know, has the time to reproduce the, the media spectacle and to, re, to meet, they mediate. We are, we are, oh, there's a wonderful movie. Did you see Olivier Assayas's movie, Personal Shopper? No, I know. Oh, it, with Chris, uh, yeah, she's a good actress. She's incredible. She's very good in this. It's very surprising, but it's all about, it's all about, it's, it's just an allegory of capital, but it, it's, um, it's a wonderful allegory and it, it's funny, you know, even though it's like very deadpan, it's quite funny because she's a medium and, <laughs> and, and she's labor, right? And it's between right. her, her and she's a medium and her brother was a medium and her brother is dead and she's alive. So she's living labor and he's dead labor, right? He's capital. And it's, it's a wonderful, very funny, although totally deadpan little mystery horror thing. But, um, but it's like, this is what's going on. I mean, the, the clerks are yeah, the medium yeah. now of the, of the spectacle capital. Well, it's, there is some kind of, um, <clears throat> you know, a number of things sort of transformed the way that, that narratives were, were being manufactured. And we, we could talk about theater, of course, and, and what happened with theater, because this stuff happens in film and TV. The stuff that happens on screens is in a different register, and it happens more easily. But, but the, the, the rise of reality television, for example, um, you know, one could do a whole kind of monograph on the, the way in which people's behaviors changed and, and the, the idea of how you present yourself to the world. I mean, people talk now increasingly like there's a camera around them and they're, they're you know, in some reality TV show. Um, and and it, there's a, I mean, I did a strange thing um, when I was, announcing these podcasts. I did a thing on Instagram and I don't know Instagram and I don't understand Instagram. And, but anyway, <laughs> I kept, I started with Assange being put in a glass booth. And believe me, this all ties back to what I was saying. I think it does. Assange in a glass booth because he would more resemble Eichmann, right? <laughs> and they, they wanted him to look like a war criminal or a terrorist or something. Right. And then I started looking at all the prevalence of that image, Hannibal Lecter, um, the, the uh, blacklist is it with James Spader, um, all of these shows, the, the series You, um, there's a glass booth, a glass prison enclosure featured in all of them. Now, I have no particular punchline to that other than, um, you know, things are derivative of, of each other in a, in a startling way. But also that that this somehow is a deep sort of almost unconscious reproduction of how people feel um, 
that that society is a prison. We talked last time about people being conditioned to, to you know, they're in lockdown. Cities are in lockdown. It's like prison. Um, but it's something else too. It's some kind of strange mental um, configuration that that I mean, because even telephone booths used to resemble, you know, a man in a glass booth kind of thing. Um, but I mention all this because you look at all the forces at work that that um, shaped narrative. Started that it became more truncated and abbreviated and and partial and interrupted and unfinished, and that um, the rise of reality TV created um, a. a or, or worked to destroy people's ear. People can't hear text or the sound of um, the, the way memorized, you know, dialogue is spoken. Um, it's one of the reasons I've always hated Im Im improvisation in theater because there is a particular sound to that. It's almost as if everybody accesses the same part of their unconscious or something that's been shaped by the society because they all improvise in the same way. And uh, it has a particular sound no matter where you are. And this is true over like the last 50 years. So anyway, what I think I'm trying to say is that, is that the narrative that you see now in Hollywood film and TV is, is, is one that has borrowed from all these strange um, kind of kitsch real life events, reductive revisionist versions of real life events, Eichmann in the glass booth or whatever it is, yeah. and, and repurpose them into these melodramas or sort of cop shows or very familiar genre templates so that almost the entire history of culture is gradually increasingly at an accelerated pace being turned into um, uh, the, the most reductive version of themselves, the most kitschified, reduce, reduced, banalized version of themselves that's possible. And somehow that's what's happening to, to the human as well, I think. I, I, yeah, that I, yeah, it's interesting. That's like, yeah, that's like headline exploitation is then being um, churned out as comic books, right? As the right. most basic, and you know, like Neil Gaiman and people like that were very influential about this of like just retelling, you know, like a little kid. You know how when you're twelve, you know, eleven or twelve, or maybe even younger, you'll make up, you'll do your little plays at home, and they'll be actually you'll be younger. Um, and it'll be, it would be about showing that by eight or nine years old, you've mastered that you recognize cliches, right? You're proud of that. So you say, so you do Ivanhoe as Star Trek and, you know, you, you know, the Star Trek cliches from the old Star Trek. So that, that's the kind of product you have. And then Neil Gaiman made a shitload of money actually writing that kind of product and selling it. You know, this childish thing where he'd, so-called retellings of Greek myths, but it would all be snark, like someone saying, oh, I'm Satan, or I'm, you know, whatever. And um, <laughs> I think, I think snark yeah. is one of the unintended byproducts yeah. of, of this, this, you know, these mechanisms that are at work. Yeah. The only way they survive yeah, snark. is through snark. And, and that's when cable TV invented this, like a, a guy named Thomas Hill, actually, who wrote those snarky, uh, you know, because 
you you would feel guilty and embarrassed like i'm going to sit at home and watch the brady bunch um you feel that the television the television was you know getting over on you you know i i i'm falling for this con so they made these ads for it saying oh we know you're not watching this seriously we know you're just kidding and that licensed them it was like what we said about the um that Bolly, that's fake bollywood movie the other day but it it let you know saying oh you know like the the ad for brady bunch that said oh it's like 12 steps and pretended to you know or whatever that it you know those that snarky attitude that was invented for the nick at night things for the nick at night marathon you know yes I, because right. adults felt embarrassed watching mary tyler moore for 12 hours or whatever and then but it was saying it's okay we know you're not serious we know it's not fooling you we know it, you don't really you're not crying we we don't <laughs> see you cry we see that you're snarky or whatever uh, but the attenuation of everything because like cable cable tv also took all the network genres and then they made them all as sex romp from the you know first cable shows mm, right for yeah. the dream on or whatever red shoe they turned every genre police genre doctors whatever into that kind of sex romp with the jaunty music you know <laughs> like whatever like it's sort of naughty unerotic un you know but nudity right because that's what you, that's what cable had over the networks was right. tits right. right so you just put tits in whatever and whatever you know a comic books you put some tits in it and then it's a cable show well i mean that has been hbo's formula since that's the, the formula yeah yeah and showtime so that but then it meant that it started this trend of like you just make everything you take the yeah it is it's the it's the tabloidization right right generally well, but the, with hbo it has even gotten to the point yeah. because that's become a joke right everyone yeah goes, hbo so you know it's it's um you know Arthur Conan Doyle with tits. It's, with tits, you know, exactly. Yeah. And that literally, tits. but, yeah. and then it get, and now it's gotta be like with, it's infantile, you know? But or now, scenes appear, when, yeah. you know, a character takes her top off, yeah. and closes her breast, the show self-con, it's almost like the show has an arrow pointing, this is our tit scene, see, we're yeah. two. Because you're and, watching cable. Yeah, and it's it's, it's HBO. Yeah, it's, it's everything operates on this meta level, you know, and it's the meta level of the meta level at a certain point. And people be, I mean, for all the subliteracy in society, yeah. viewers have become um, extraordinarily um, sophisticated in reading the meta level, you know, punchline or gag. They're never very extended. The meta narratives are never extended narratives, but. But they operate the way advertising operates, and, and there's a reflexive response, and, and that's fine. You know, and I mean, that licenses, because people feel, feel that they're wasting their time. They're embarrassed to be doing this, so they have to be reassured. And it's like, they, so they put, they, they slathered everything in Harvard Lampoon. You know, the, they got the, yeah, the Letterman yeah. writers, you know, all come from the Harvard Lampoon. The Harvard Lampoon had this attitude. And then if you take um yeah mary tyler moore but you surround it you frame it in a in ads for itself with the from the harvard lampoon then you've licensed people to to watch it because otherwise it's shameful they wouldn't even you know 20 years ago when it was on the first time they wouldn't even admit that they were watching it right right you know and well, now they get to celebrate it by knowing or donna reed or whatever these corny shows were that suddenly well, that's a sub, you know, that was a, <clears throat> that's a, a, I mean, I will 
just yeah. as an aside, that's almost like a sub topic, the, the effect of camp um, aesthetics on the mainstream. Um, yeah, it's, it's not it's quite camp, right? It's strange. like snark is like a reduced camp. It's like attenuated camp. The camp is the camp is attenuated like everything else. Right, right, right. No, I mean, but you know, Sontag wrote that thing about camp, yeah. which in retrospect is not very good. But I mean, she did identify this thing, and and it is now completely um, integrated into, you know, the, the narratives of the spectacle. There's always a certain camp element. Uh, and, and you can almost identify them. You can go, oh, that's there because that's in 20 years going to be recycled in a certain way as, you know, a camp product or something. Uh, she was ahead of the game with that, in that her camp thing was this terrible, argument i mean it, it was a um it was an assault i mean what she did was she's in the same week or whatever she says well fascism was really kind of cool and stylish and right. the most camp thing in the world the most camp entity is charles de gaulle yeah, <laughs> I mean, she yeah. was basically she was basically reversing she was disavowing um the anti-fascist project well, there is something on an aesthetic level, in an aesthetic yeah. pun. Yeah. There's no question that there is a, a deeply reactionary side to camp. Um, and and it's it's unsettling because to me anyway, because I can't really articulate what it is, but I sense it and I'm and I think I'm right. And um it's you well know, it's very con it's con it's a consumer supremacism it's saying it doesn't really matter how this thing was made or what it's for or anything like that all that matters is that i as the consumer i'm the real creative force right not the artist right. or the manufacturer because very often it'll what you can you can yeah, camp camp you can appreciate anything although initially there was an implication that you really had to have a certain good taste and a lifestyle to ordain something valid via camp, you know, it, it, not anyone could make something right, right, a right, camp right. masterpiece, but it was potentially anyone with the money to go shopping in the East Village could ordain something as a camp. Well, you had to have you had to have the vocabulary and history of good taste and aesthetics to designate something as camp. You know, you couldn't idiots with inarticulate, you know, chuckleheads couldn't come in and say that's very camp. Because right, and it was a mis it was a mystery thing to say to somebody who could say that's fabulous and that's trash with a tremendous confidence was necessary to, yeah. to do camp, right? To say, oh, this is isn't this fantastic? But you could only say that, and you'd never have to explain it. That's the thing. It was an absolute consumer despotism. Well, it was. Like, it was like people going, oh. Um, episode seventeen, Gilligan's Island is so good. It's that, so good, right? But you can't ask them why. Right, but you can't ask them right, um, because you betray your own stupidity, and you have to say, well, of course, everybody knows that. Seventeen episodes. It was so great, right? It was just, and but initially, it was like they came, It was a downtown. It was gay. It was. It, it had a legitimacy that it couldn't it really. Subversive. That it was to, yeah, it was subversive because it was also like saying, "I'm going to redeem." Like this object of um, uh, liberal intelligentsia's contempt, you know, which is suburban 
the aspirations of suburban Midwesterners to love, to glamour, to um, prosperity was the object of contempt, right? And that what was initially redeemed. It was like Bobby Soxer and 1950s uh, poof dresses, lava lamp. I mean, not lava lamps actually. It was at the time of love, but you know, 19 yeah. the aspiration of the, fir the first post-war generation of working class people to become sort of middle class. That's what was the object of contempt. And that's what the gay sub subculture, and most of those people were refugees from th that, you know, right? The East Village, they'd all come to the Midwest from those families that rejected them, but well, they were then yeah. elevating the very, the, the signs, the, the, the emblems of success of the of the homes that they left that they missed that they that rejected them you know it was well, a, I think it's, very it's complex yeah, yeah. It is, because and then you've mentioned class yeah. and that's what i wanted yeah. to touch on here that that um the subversive element in in those camp pronouncements because it was sort of a defensive slightly subversive and and into at the beginning a kind of private conversation and private aesthetic um, but it, it was also wed to class, you know, it was, um, it was an outsider culture that recognized its own outsider status and it could make fun of, you know, hicks from Iowa coming in who, you know, didn't know this or that. Um, but at the same time, it was also making fun of the canon, you know. Of, of the right. And it was reclaiming, it was reconquering that and redeeming the middle, the, the very environments from which like the, the Midwesterner might have something wonderful on. That was the thing. Right. Just right. They might not know yes. it, but right. they're, they're, they're ostracized, they're black sheep who had gone right. to the city. They would recognize, oh my God, that code is fabulous. That code from, <laughs> you know, whatever the discount place and the, or, you know, that pink and, and gold plaid coat that mommy is wearing. It's fabulous, right. you know, that it's not corny and awful and contemptible. And well, it, was this about, is a, this it was about redeeming the aspirations of the post-war, the po you know, the... the yeah, that's, that's well yeah. put, I think, because it, it... And I can remember, I can remember in the 70s in New York, the, um, that, that that aesthetic, that posture... Um, intellectual posture was still very prevalent in that kind of original form and um, and but it but it eroded quickly and one of the strange things about the the domestication of gay culture in a sense the integration into mainstream culture is that what was radical and subversive got got excised and what was left was a parody of the stuff that used to get made fun of. And um, I have a feeling that mechanism um, happens a lot in terms of, of, you know, Western culture over the last 40 years. But I wanted to, to, to stay on class just a second because going all the way back to McLuhan, one of McLuhan's problems, one of the problems was the reason when you read McLuhan for all his insights, and he's incredibly perceptive, um, and an original thinker, but there's never a class analysis. And, no, I mean, he doesn't and, and see... He doesn't why he see, ends up with dumb conclusions, you know? Yeah, he doesn't see 
the conflict at all. He doesn't see how the society is produced. He thinks it's it's an idealist thing. It's a technological determinism. It's a you know, ever, even when he is narrating something like the class struggle, he doesn't see it that way. Mm. I was thinking about camp, like my image of camp. Like, do you remember in the seventies when, as self-defense from gay bashing in New York, people often carried a um, you know a twirling baton. <laughs> that a cheer, you know, a drum, whatever they called the yeah, well, the, yeah, 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 that the, with the two rubber ends, right, and and that you know, and then later that's sort of a buff that becomes Buffy, right? But the the um, on the subway you used to see people carrying that um, as um, so, because you weren't allowed to carry a, a a cudgel on the subway. You can't carry a weapon, but that was sporting equipment, so you could <laughs> you could carry it. And um, and defend yourself with it, and and it was became a kind of camp, uh, but it, it was it was active, you know, and it yeah. was stylish. It was a stylish thing, but it was actually also a militant object, and yeah. and it was that that kind of thing. I mean, that you had real genuine aesthetic and cultural practices. That's like now, not, this this it's like we've been deadened. I mean, it, it's still going on in some pockets of society, but it's, it's hardly even, you know, people aren't even capable of doing anything um, without the instructions and guiding of the, of the right. Um, right. finance, you know, grand finance led, um, led mediatic things. And it, with McLuhan, yeah, it's really, his insights are really good. And then he destroys them with these bogus explanations he likes evo psych type explanations or just so stories or something right. that yeah. you know because he doesn't see yeah he doesn't see struggle at all as as even producing anything no and and i think that you know one could one could one could launch into quite a lengthy analysis of of the way class operates in terms of you know the 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 imagery and the cues and everything that um, that Hollywood comes up with—it's always one of the things that I'm I'm painfully aware of at times. Um, watching shows now is the because those people that run studios and run networks fifty years ago had a connection to the working class and to the underclass. They themselves may have come from the working class, and that's no longer true at all. So it's they just were also frontline class warriors themselves for the bourgeoisie. Like they knew who the enemy was. Right. Sure. Of class. They were aware of it. And now they, they really don't, they don't even, they've, they've racialized or, or, uh, you know, fantasized their enemy. So they don't even, you know, they see their fantasy of the working class is not even like of a class enemy anymore. It's just peons. It's just scattered <laughs> scattered um yeah house elves another species insects you know they don't have any respect for the enemy anymore well and is it maybe as we slowly wrap this up that's a good segue to um back to the coronavirus because the the way in which the underclass is viewed now as an insect or i mean literally not symbolically because People don't think at that symbolic level anymore because that symbolic level has all but been eradicated, you know, with all the yeah. reasons we sort of hinted at earlier. 
So now this movie of the week that is the coronavirus pandemic, and they always, my God, they always invent these vocabularies. You know? <laughs> it's, just, it's just amazing, jaw-dropping. And you watch people slowly start using these terms, you know, yeah, as if they as have if any idea what it means, right? As if pandemic implied the severity of the disease. Like it could be a pandemic of, you know, herpes. Yeah, I mean, or or of or of a rash or or of a nail fungus. I mean, like as if pandemic it, that itself means that it's deadly. Right, right. But but <laughs> it's a movie. Day. But you see, it's a movie, and it's a movie. <laughs> and so exactly. it's a movie in which the the virus is you know takes on the shape of some sort of you know. Um, uh, it's it the villain personality yeah it's the villain uh, and that, you know like i was imagining at the end of the movie that we were sitting talking the other day that you know it, you would okay so the next stage of this event this fake show the new show is going to they're going to put on the control room where where the the heroes are figuring out the the vaccine and we'll we'll actually get clips of that right with the clock ticking and they're working on the thing and working on containing and things are going off boop 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 and they're working on the <laughs> The thing, and then the screen will suddenly go zigzaggy, and then the virus will address the audience. The yeah. virus will be there with a mask on. Address <laughs> us, right? Well, that, it's, and that's it's, what's going to happen, and people will yeah. be like, "Oh my God, the virus said that's going to kill us all." You know, the the thing <laughs> is that 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 that, however, this winds down. I mean, because I was talking to somebody the other day, I said, "Look." You know, um, Richard Branson is filing for all this stuff to get, you know, bankruptcy benefits. Because I don't know what it is. Um, I saw it mentioned, um, Corey mentioned it. And this is, these actions taking place against this backdrop of um, this pandemic. This is the stuff that all these guys talk about at, you know, Davos and the Bilderberg group. And I mean, what do you think they talk about? This is what they talk yeah, about. This um, is what they, and, I mean, this is it. They're really ending democracy now. They're yeah. going to surround, they're going to start building the walls around the world cities, you know, because they need these to be fortress cities, right, for the future. Yep. And this will be the excuse to build those apparatuses of, uh, you know, in and out of border checks around the ruling class cities. And that, I um, seen, yeah, yeah, because you can't. People are asking for it, begging They're for asking it. for it. Yeah, they want to, they want to, um, they do. They want to be, although they want, they don't, the commodity fetishes are so different. The, the, um, their, their magic thinking is so intense that they think that if they stay in their house, that nobody is involved with provisioning them. Like as if they're growing everything they need in their house. Like yeah. how is anything going to get in there that's going to help you live? Like how is electricity getting there? That's <laughs> a disaster movie where in the middle of, you know, yeah. Um, this landscape that people take showers and stuff, you know. Um, right. Oh, so we need, we need, uh, yeah, we need the robots to... too, right? Because the robots then could be bringing, delivering the food. Oh, that's what it will be. Yeah. Um, anyway, I, I, think, <laughs> I think, I think that it's, it's, it's a really good example of the, um, the way in which people think in terms of cinema. I mean, you know, well, that's back to Jonathan Beller, but I mean, it, it really is true. And, and, um, and it's Guy Debord. And I was thinking about Horkheimer the other day, because he said, um, 
you know, the culture industry, it was one of his famous quotes, culture industry is like psychoanalysis in reverse. Um, and that's, yeah. that's kind of what we have now. And that's where I end up. And I would, you know, if you talk about Pinter or, or, or whoever we, you know, Hond Key and, and writers who we think are great, that's, it's worth discussing what it is that we think makes them different. You know, um, I don't think we have time on this. Podcast, no, next but, time we should talk about, right, good things instead of just the damage. But that's, you know, it, it's partly that they are able to access that space that has not been um, sucked into the screen somehow. Um, I mean, Caspar, Honky's play, emerges now, however, 40 years after it, it debuted, um, as a really significant play, I think. And it's really true, was, and, the, and especially as the language starts to fall apart. Yeah, it is about us. that. And, and, you know, I was thinking of, I was talking to Martin the other day, one of the greatest things I ever saw was Richard Foreman um, directing a Botho Strauss play. It was a very weird thing. It was not his own thing. Foreman directed Botho Strauss's Three Acts of Recognition. Um, long forgotten um, and, a, and a genius piece. And, and Foreman is another guy that um, is worth talking about and, and Genet and, and whoever, you know, we want to put in this canon. But um, Thomas Bernhardt, I would say. There is something about, and this is back to the beginning, about memory, about the way that one has not lost contact with the process of remembering. Because I, I, you know, it's a cliche to say that it's an amnesia culture, but, but it is. I mean, people- Right, and it's worse because it's, it's like garbage in, garbage out. The thing is that the memories are now made of false of garbage that's been put in your brain instead of your real memory like right, right. you're like the you're, so you're we're still working on them we're still doing right. whatever we're we're doing we're making ourselves out of these memories but the memories are synthetic um propaganda capsules that have been forced into our brains in our minds instead of our actual uh, actual memories that we produced and that we were participants in and that took place in a three or four dimensional universe, three dimensions of space and one of time. And instead we're, we have these substitutes, you know, it's just like you kept a, a, a rat in a cage full of mirrors, you know, or something. And not even mirrors, you know, I mean, because you can figure mirrors out that they're reflecting something. <laughs> well, I, yeah, it's, 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 it, it, it I'm, you know, I'm always, a, I see things and I read things and I listen to people and I so often, a couple of times a day, um, I have these dropped jaw moments where I think, did I really hear somebody say that? Hearing this Glenn Greenwald thing, just, I hadn't oh. heard that, you know. It's, oh, you got to see it. You got to go look at this. It's, it's staggering. It's, it's, it's Although he's a fraud, you know, but you well, see he it has people been where it's genuine. I mean, he's a, he's a spook, but it, the, for, so, you know, he may not even think this, but there are people who will say it, who will think it. Like yeah. that's what they're, they're actually, they believe, even though it's been put in there, but they believe they're producing that totally authentically as an expression of their own feelings and thoughts. Right. right. Well, people remember um, 
they remember commercials and advertisements also as if these were real events. And even when they recognize this memory, I have this memory, but gee, it's a commercial that ran yeah. in the 1960s. It doesn't matter. And I think that's a really key thing that, that it's okay that I'm, it, for most people, I think it's okay that I'm remembering a commercial. What's wrong with the commercial? You know, um, that's real too. Uh, there's this, this fake, this like fake egalitarian um, something that accounts for this sort of massive, I don't know the word, semi-autistic, solipsistic. Um, yeah. Although I should stress that I think that in terms of autistic in that sense, it's not actually really related to cognitive impairments that people have. You know, it, it's actually something else, you know, I mean, it's related to some, but I don't think everything that's called autism is actually one thing. No, I don't either. And that's a whole topic. I don't, yeah. I don't quite buy the entire spectrum thing. Because no, I, I don't buy it either. I think there's no. autism in which people suffer debilitating, um, you know, cognitive impairments, I guess the word is impairment. Yeah, with, some, some, with some kind of brain damage or neurological and, damage. But and the Asperger's, yeah. yeah, the Asperger's end of it just feels neurotic to me. And, and then the solipsism, I mean, it really depends. I, mean, I think if people are just throw that diagnosis in every direction and people, some people want the diagnosis, you know, whatever, but this solipsism, you know, or this, but it's the fragmenting thought, like what you were saying, you know, there's the inability to read a face, but then also what happens is that once you have a critical mass of, of debility in your environment, then your language, whether you can, whether you're capable of producing it or not, it doesn't work anymore. So it's also, you're disabled even though you're you're technically able still you have your capacities more or less but you they're not the same capacities because they're social capacities either some it's like well you speak perfect english but you're in a town where nobody speaks english then you're no longer you're in an alphabeta right your english well, is worthless people, i think it's also because things have progressed to the point where people don't okay you don't recognize expressions on a face one of the problems now we've progressed yeah. to the point where those faces are not quite faces anymore i mean people have no and that's that's connected to what bella was saying about the creation of race with the photography and the images yes. it's absolutely true yeah. something else is now that all these images of faces which are also manipulated and transformed and stuff like that but something we're starting something else is being perceived that we're learning to perceive have nothing to do with what we used to perceive in human faces. Hello? So you could just Photoshop memories, you know? Um, yes. Because it's not, faces are these images that have been manipulated. And then the actual human face, the parent's face, the face that you run into daily, um, unless you're, you know, self-distancing, um, the face that you run into, I think people have fewer expressions than they did 50 years ago so that's uh, the camera consciousness too right like they're aware yeah i think i think it's partly that i think it's it's the loss of language because um you know people have you know no fewer words they say fewer words they they um speak less that's why uh, jonathan crary's book 24 7 is so interesting you know people sleep less Everything is um, a kind of deprivation that that um, results. I mean, 
and again, you can look at older photographs, older movies even, but, um, and look at people's faces and yeah. it, there's a, there's a qualitative difference. Because uh, I yeah. I remember my mother, like the way she would look at someone when she was talking. I mean, people sort of remember, we remember people of an older generation of like, you know, she would meet someone in an elevator or to be talking to someone in a shop. And, uh, you know, she would look at them. She would look and, you know, say, how are you? And she would mean it, right? And she would look and it was like her eyes were hands rifling into their brain to find how they felt and, you know, what they were thinking. And yeah. it's like now you occasionally meet like an old Jewish lady, like in my neighborhood or something and who, who talks to me like that. And I realized that, yeah, it's gone. Yeah, it's gone. It is. And I have, I have memories of a few people, the last of the people that, um, the last of the sort of old Jewish ladies that I knew and, <laughs> and the old Italian men that I knew. Yeah. They're all gone. They're dead. And um, I think that this is now, we're into the third generation of people that, um, first of all, see their own image much more than previous generations. You know, it's a selfie habituation, this constant reproduction of this image of yourself. Um, that image is manipulated then and filtered somehow and tuned. I, there's an yeah. app, a face tuner app. <laughs> um, you know, my God. And, uh, and that, so they are creating this ideal self. That's part of the self that they put in social media and that they try to see and so forth. And this ideal self, um, and this would be a whole discussion on, you know, the, the, changing shape of beauty and what that means because i'm not sure the idea of beauty even exists anymore but anyway those faces are paralyzed they're paralyzed and then they're physically the actresses are sort of forced to physically paralyze their face with the botox so that it's not too mobile and right like fit, and then their children are seeing a paralyzed face when the kids are trying to amuse them they, yeah. they won't they're trying to make their parents smile and they can't yeah i just think it's 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 reduced you know it it has it has um shrunk the the, the all the many um tiny readings of facial tics and micro uh expressions um are that menu is is much reduced and I think I think we just see less of it, and we 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 don't realize we're seeing less of it, and we we become inured to the fact that that we're looking at people that increasingly resemble robots or or androids or something. And, and sneering, the constant sneering to cover up. Like I see, I saw, I told this story, I think, on some other event, but I saw in my neighborhood like a a, a guy and you know a hipster guy being sarcastic with his four year old. Yeah, you can't. Yeah. You cannot be sarcastic with children like that. They you, Amazing, you owe huh? them yeah. your sincerity and your real emotion. Why would you want to shame your child? I know, and kids are so sensitive to that stuff, and and but they quickly learn that you know this is well. They're being. They're not being proper. I mean, something is happening there, right? But the face, the face of a sarcastic person, is also not. That's not a, a, an honest, I mean, there, there's a break between their actual feeling and what's appearing on the face. It's a, it's yeah. a masquerade. Yeah. 
Well, that's a huge topic. We're going to have to put yeah. that one to the side. Okay. We we'll probably have to wrap this one up. Um, but we should do more. Um, there's seemingly so much to talk about. I'm just going to finish with one other thing. <clears throat> a lot of people have said, well, are you going to like script these podcasts or organize them? And I don't think that's what podcasts should be, or at least these shouldn't be that way. I write a blog where I try to organize my thoughts. Some people mm -hmm. claim they're not organized at all, and they may be right, but that's what I try to do there. This, yeah, I've always I mean, valued just yeah. hearing people in conversation. Yeah, um, and if, if, you, if, you ha if you're reading something, then it's actually um, easier for other people to read it. Not for you to read it to them. That takes 20 times as long as if they absolutely. could just read it. And I mean, there's, there's a reason that lectures happen in universities, but they're, they're kind of awful, a scripted lecture. Like, because it, people reading out loud takes you know, it's wasting your time. You're some, you know, yeah, an hour well, long very, po yeah, scripted podcast could be read in 10 minutes. It's very hard to concentrate past a certain point, no matter who you are, no matter what's being said. That's um, what reading okay, anyway, is for. So, Those people should read. They should yeah. read articles. They should read your blog. And, well, and now that you're self <laughs> all of you people out there, you yeah. have to read. So, you know, start with uh, Karl Marx, probably. Yeah, exactly. Now's the time to go back and read all that stuff. <laughs> read capital six times while we were in quarantine. And what can we, humanity might have a chance. Yeah. Okay. Really? Thank Jack Littman too. Um, Thank you, Jack Littman. A genius who helps with the tech. Very talented guy, also as an actor and filmmaker. And his film, um, the name of which has escaped me, his uh, micro-budget sci-fi film won some awards. So I want to give a shout. Oh, wow! Out okay, where can we see it? Him, uh, because he's been a big help with this. And all where the Where can we see the film? Uh, the what? It's called Golden State Film Festival. Um, and the, oh, I see him at the festival, but not the name of the film. But what, oh. where, where can we see his film? I don't know. I'll have to post it. I'll post it on Instagram. How's that? Post, post it on Instagram. Okay. I have an account just to it eavesdrop on the opera singers. So there we are. Um, I hope <laughs> all of you stay uh, virus free. And um, yeah. unless you're 88 years old, you probably will. And um, I keep joking about this, except that I'm probably inching into the 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 age. No, I mean I worry. I have COPD. I don't want to get pneumonia. But you know, also it's just that's the whole thing. It's it's like yeah, you, people. You don't have to teach people how not to get a cold in cold season. It's just such crazy. Don't have to legislate that. No. Well. We'll see. By the time of the next podcast, we'll see where we are. So I'm going to do one with Chris, all, another one with Guy, I hope, and a few more with you, Molly, I hope. Great. And um, so we'll be in touch. And, okay. Um, and uh, this will be up in a day, I think. Great. Okay. Okay. Talk to you later. Bye-bye. Okay, Thank you.